Please stay tuned for important disclosure information at the conclusion of this episode. Welcome to the Investing Insights Podcast from Morningstar. In this final podcast of 2020, we look at three highly rated funds that are struggling. We highlight three Morningstar medalist funds that are thriving. Ed Slot discusses the tax implications on charitable giving. Tim Steffen suggests strategies for year-end taxes. And Christine Benz breaks down the new math on emergency funds. Let's get started. Here are three funds having a difficult year. We assign high Morningstar analyst ratings to strategies that we think will outperform a relevant index or most peers over a market cycle. But that doesn't mean there won't be some dry spells along the way. Today, we're looking at three highly rated funds that are struggling this year. Oakmark Select is one of the worst performers in Morningstar's large blend category in 2020. Katie Reichart, who covers the fund, points out that because the fund concentrates in about 20 companies, investors must be comfortable with boom and bust returns, and this year's returns qualify as a bust. Although the portfolio has its share of winners this year, including Netflix and Facebook, its returns are being dragged down by horrible performance from its sizable stake in financials. Although we think Oakmark Select will see better days again, it requires a heavy dose of patience. Fidelity Advisor Growth and Incomes Returns also land near the bottom of the large blend category. The fund's overweight positions in energy, industrials, and financials have stung. Management embraces out-of-favor or fundamentally challenged companies and avoids firms that have been bid up by market mania. Robbie Greengold, who covers the fund for Morningstar, points out that management's discipline has rewarded patient investors over time. Lastly, one of our favorite funds in Morningstar's large growth category, PrimeCap Odyssey Growth, is struggling relative to its peers. The managers are benchmark agnostic, favoring companies that they think have above-average growth potential when those prospects are still emerging, largely overlooked, or clouded by controversy. As such, the fund lacks significant exposure to the mega-cap tech names driving so many other large growth funds. Alec Lucas, who covers the fund for Morningstar, says that the managers have a tolerance for volatility. Investors who own the fund need the same. Six days a week, we deliver the latest news for investors. Just say, Alexa, enable the Morningstar skill, or visit Morningstar.com slash Alexa. Now, we highlight three funds with returns near the top of their categories. It's already the middle of the fourth quarter of 2020. Today, we're looking at three highly rated funds having great years, with returns that currently land near the top of their respective categories. Morgan Stanley Institutional Discovery is a top performer this year among funds in Morningstar's mid-cap growth category. The fund's concentrated, high-growth style lends itself to boom-and-bust returns over short time periods, and 2020 has been quite a boom for the fund, with top holdings like Zoom Video Communications and Shopify posting outsized gains this year. According to Morningstar's Katie Reichart, the fund's relatively concentrated and sector-agnostic portfolio means investors in this fund need a stomach for volatility. That being said, we like the manager's process that blends companies that dominate their markets with less established industry disruptors. Fidelity Growth Company, which is closed to new investors, is a standout in Morningstar's large growth category this year. Sizable positions in stocks like Apple and Amazon have powered returns. Steve Weimer has managed this portfolio for more than two decades, focusing on companies with resilient business models that can fuel rapid growth over a three- to five-year period. He's willing to invest heavily in profitless firms, 
he thinks possess extraordinary potential too, and allocates bite-sized portions of the fund's assets across dozens of young small caps, including some privately held firms like SpaceX. Robbie Greengold, who covers the fund for Morningstar, calls the strategy unique, but points out that such high multiple stocks carry high risks of disappointment if their earnings growth expectations don't pan out. Lastly, PGIM Jenison Growth is also from Morningstar's large growth category, and it too is having a banner year. Stakes in market darlings like Tesla have bolstered returns. The managers typically run a somewhat compact 55 to 70 stock portfolio dominated by fast-growing giant caps trading at relatively high price multiples. Management specifically looks for market leaders with durable, above-average top-line growth prospects. They favor businesses with healthy financials, strong research and development capabilities, and defensible franchises. Morningstar's Robbie Greengold says that consistently good stock picking over the long haul has made for an enviable track record at this fund. Watch all the Morningstar content you love from your living room Download the Morningstar Roku channel and get up-to-date, independent insights on today's markets. Be comfortable. Be informed. Next, Christine Benz from Morningstar, Inc. interviews tax and retirement planning expert Ed Slott. Hi, I'm Christine Benz from Morningstar. Owing to the COVID-19 pandemic, charitable giving in 2020 is going to look a little bit different than in years past. Joining me to discuss how things are changing and how that might affect your charitable giving strategy is tax and retirement planning expert, Ed Slott. Ed, thank you so much for being here. Great to be back as always. Thanks, Christine. Well, it's great to have you here. Let's talk about this new charitable deduction that is available just for 2020. It's not big, but it is something that's available for people even who don't itemize their tax taxes. So let's talk about that uh, small deduction. $300. Now, when you say it's only available for people who don't itemize, that's 90% of the people. Most people don't itemize anymore after the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act raised the standard deduction. And that's particularly true for the people that are over uh, 65 and over and get the extra standard deduction. So what's happening is most people are still giving and they're probably giving more so than ever this year. But for a few years now, they haven't been getting the benefit, the tax benefit of the giving that they're doing because they don't itemize, so there's no deduction. So this 300 will help a bit. Uh, I have a feeling this is one of those items, whether people give or not, everybody's gonna put $300 on their tax return, you know, because it's on there and it's what we call above the line. It reduces adjusted gross income. Everybody gets it. Now, technically you have to give the 300 to get it, but I think most people give that amount, or if you don't, maybe you should and uh, take the, exclusion from income. It's uh, it's better than a deduction. Uh, itemized deduction is after adjusted gross income. This reduces adjusted gross income, so it's better than a deduction. One question mark related to this deduction was whether married couples could double it. So if I'm part of a married couple filing jointly, could I take 600? What What's your take on that question? There's no take. The answer is no. It's $300. It's clear in the Joint Committee on Taxation. In fact, you told me you were going to ask this. I I looked it up. In the report, uh, you got to go to the footnotes, very small writing. But in the report here, this is the Joint Committee on Taxation, because this question has come up. In fact, I saw a story, I think, in the Wall Street Journal a couple of weeks ago, maybe last week, 
And uh, they said they're not sure they interviewed people, but it is sure in the fine print here, you can almost see it on camera here in the very fine print in the smallest writing. It says the $300 limit applies to the tax filing unit. Then they go further and make it clear. They say, thus, for example, married taxpayers who file a joint return and do not elect to itemize are allowed to deduct up to a total of $300 on a joint return. So there's the chapter and verse uh, that's uh, behind the law, you know, the joint committee interpretation. So it's $300. But that question has come up because in the CARES Act, it just said each person can do $300. So the question, your question came up naturally. What about two people on one return? Right, right. Now, how about itemizers, people who are itemizing? There's no double dipping, right? If I'm an itemizer, I can't also take this $300 deduction. It's clear this is for non-itemizers, which again, is most people. So um, for people who do itemize, the CARES Act increases the limit on how much they're eligible to give. Can you talk about that? Yeah, you can give up to 100% of your income now. There used to be a 60% limitation. Now, this is for big givers. Most people don't give everything they earn, but some do. And if and you may find this year there are a lot of those wealthier people maybe that want to do extra giving, given our times today. So they can really push that a lot more. They can do up to 100% of their AGI, adjusted gross income. There's no limitation there. Okay, but donor advised funds, people who use those, you can't. No, no, yeah, I'm glad you brought that up. This is yeah. for cash gift, not supporting organization, donor advised funds and stuff like that. No, and the same thing with the $300, cash gifts. Okay, good to know. So one thing I wanna ask about is the qualified charitable distribution, the QCD. For many retirees, the QCD goes hand in hand with required minimum distributions, which are on hold for 2020. So the question is, should retirees still do the QCD even though they are not uh, subject to RMDs this year? Absolutely. The only negative with QCDs is that it doesn't apply to enough people. It only applies to IRA owners or IRA beneficiaries, not plans, not 401ks, IRA owners or IRA beneficiaries who are 70 and a half years old. Now, it's interesting. The SECURE Act raised the QCD, Qualified Charitable Distribution, uh, raised the RMD age, the uh, required minimum distribution age to 72. But the QCD age did not change. So you have this little gap. And then you mentioned the CARES Act eliminated RMDs all way for 2020. So the question has been coming up. Well, even if I'm, I would have been subject to RMDs, but now I'm not, should I do the QCD anyway? And my answer is absolutely. If you're giving anyway, it's, and you qualify age 70 and a half from an IRA, this is the most tax efficient way to give. Because if you're giving with a regular check, like we just talked about, and you don't itemize, you get no tax benefit out of that deduction. By having funds, even if you're not subject to RMDs, if you're still giving to charity and you qualify for the QCD, do the uh, direct transfer from the IRA to the charity with the giving you were going to do anyway, and it's excluded from income. Again, better than a deduction. 
Okay, Ed, this is really helpful. A lot of need out there this year and a lot of people with charitable intent. This is a great recap of what's going on this year. Thank you so much for being here. Thanks, Christine. Thanks for watching. I'm Christine Benz for Morningstar. Now, Tim Steffen of PIMCO and Christine Benz look at how to improve your tax position for the year. Hi, I'm Christine Benz for Morningstar. We're coming into the home stretch of 2020, and that means that you still have a little bit of time to improve your tax position for the year. Joining me to share some ideas on this front is Tim Steffen. He's Advisor Education Senior Consultant for PIMCO. Tim, thank you so much for being here. Thanks, Christine. Great to see you again. Good to see you too. So let's talk about the key steps that people should take when thinking about their tax position. Um, let's start with the current year. What sort of information should people be gathering when thinking about their tax position for this calendar year? Sure. Yeah. You want to understand where you fall relative to certain breakpoints and thresholds and phase outs and all that this year. So understand, you know, looking at the different tax brackets, where do you fall? Which bracket are you in? How much room do you have to, before you can move up to a bracket? Or what would it take to lower your income into a lower bracket? Where do you stand relative to realized capital gains and losses for the year? Does it make sense to maybe do some things to offset those? Um, if this is a year where you're going to be itemizing deductions, does it make sense to try and bring some of those into the year to take advantage of that? Or if you're not going to be itemizing, what might you do? Um, or understanding limits like phase outs for medical expense deductions or the limitations on charitable contributions or all those other types of things out there. So just just take a snapshot of where you're at right now and understand where do I stand relative to these things? Because that's going to drive some of the decisions you make later in the year. Okay. So you also think it's important to take a look forward into 2021. Think about any changes that you might see, changes that you've had perhaps in your own life or that you might see in your own tax position. Can you walk us through what people should have on their radars from that standpoint? Sure. A few of the big ones, like if, if, for example, you're planning to retire in 2021 or you retired midway through 2020, you're going to be seeing this perhaps steady decline in your income from a full years of work to a part year of work to no work. So you're going to see your taxable income maybe shrink. And does that maybe push cause you to uh, uh, shift the timing of recognizing certain items of income or deductions. Uh, if you're getting married next year, does that mean you're taking two, if, if you have two people with similar levels of income getting married, they might find themselves in a higher tax bracket. Two people with very different levels of income who get married might find themselves in a lower net bracket overall. Um, so there's a lot of things to take a look at you know, what is happening next year that doesn't have any impact on what's happening now, but might trigger some of the, or, or force some of the decisions you make relative to, again, additional income or deductions over these next two years. Speaking of the future, we just had a big election, and I, I know that many investors are thinking about how that might change their tax position going forward. Can you shed any light on that? Should people even be spending much time thinking about that at this point? Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, in addition to what's going on in your own life, you got to look at what's happening outside in, in the rest of the world. And are there things legislatively happening that might cause you to change some of your approaches, like what we saw several years ago when the TCJA rolled in after at the end of 2017? So uh, if you look at you know what might happen in a potential by in, in a Biden administration next year, and we've seen a lot of the proposals that have come out from from his camp on tax law changes that they might be interested in making. There's a lot of uncertainty as to whether those are actually going to happen or not. Um, you know, a lot depends on what's going to happen with some of these runoff races happening in Georgia as far as full control of the Senate. Um, and, and then there's some uncertainty as to the specifics of some of his proposals. There's been a lot of talk about uh, no tax increases for anybody with income below $400,000. We're not really sure exactly what that means. Does that mean gross income, adjusted gross income, taxable income? 
business income only? What about singles versus married? So there's a lot of uncertainty as to how some of those things might impact people. But there are things out there that people should be aware of that the other thing to consider is effective date. So uh, just because he maybe takes office next year, do those changes get pushed out to late in the year and maybe don't become effective until 2022? So before you make any big decisions now, uh, anticipating tax law changes, you take a step back and really think, are they really affecting me? When might be the effective date? Are they really going to happen? So a lot of uncertainties in, in reacting to potential law changes right now. Okay. So let's talk about some specific things that investors might think about as the year winds down. Let's start with some sort of portfolio considerations with respect to taxes. So the most common one is looking at your capital gain situation, uh, understanding the different breakpoints on capital gains rates. You know, there's the zero, the 15, the 20% rate. There's the 3.8% net investment tax that kind of filters in there somewhere. Um, understanding if you have net gains this year, Perhaps it makes sense to accelerate some losses into the year, recognize some losses to offset those gains. Remember the netting rules on, on capital gains that short-term losses offset short-term gains, long-term losses offset long-term gains. And then if you have a gain or loss in, 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 in each of those, they can offset each other after they offset their own kind. So you know, look at your capital gain position and then understand what are the optimal losses that I might want to recognize. Obviously, we wish we didn't have any losses in our portfolio. This has been a weird year, so it's you know, it's likely there may be some out there. If you've got them, they're an asset to you. Take advantage of them. Use it to offset your gains if it makes sense. Right. Tim, you referenced this is a little bit of a weird year and that investors truly might have some really strong gainers in their portfolios, like especially mm -hmm. in the growth side of the style box, mm -hmm. as well as some losers. If they have energy names or, or value-oriented yeah. holdings, they may actually be able to do some of that netting. Exactly. And then, you know, with mutual funds making their distributions coming out this year, with all the withdrawals that happened out of funds earlier in the year, that may have forced them to recognize some gains. People still hold those funds are going to get those gains distributed out to them. So you may not have done a lot in your own portfolio, but if you hold mutual funds, you might have some gains coming your way here in the next few weeks. Let's talk about income levels. Um, we're in a pandemic. We have still high <laughs> unemployment. Many people may be mm -hmm. experiencing lower levels of taxable income than in the past. Yeah. We also have this pause on required minimum distributions. Any strategies to bear in mind if you do find yourself in what you hope will be sort of a temporarily low tax bracket? Yeah, it's one of the unfortunate things of this year is we are seeing people who are going to have lower levels of income than what they're used to. But again, uh, take a positive attitude. View that as an opportunity maybe to take advantage of some things and to time certain transactions. If your income is artificially low this year and you expect it to bounce back next year to a more normal level, whether that's through work or RMDs, as you mentioned, uh, maybe this is the year you recognize maybe some additional income from retirement accounts. Consider a Roth conversion. If your income is artificially low and you're in a lower bracket than you might normally be, this might be the year to do to consider a conversion. Uh, remember, with conversions in particular, there's no recharacterizations anymore. So you've got to really want to do the conversion. You can't undo it. Um, other things to think about might be if you're a business owner, maybe trying to accelerate a little bit of billings to bring some additional income into this year, pushing off some of the expenses that you might have incurred into next year where they might be more valuable to you. Uh, again, people with lower levels of income, the, your deductions aren't going to be as valuable to you. So maybe delaying some of those year-end charitable gifts into January, uh, they might provide a little larger tax benefit for you next year than they would this year. So when you're at lower levels of income, it, the general rule of thumb is accelerate income, defer deductions. And that's going to be kind of the, the rule of thumb for a lot of folks this year. You mentioned deductions. You mentioned charitable contributions. Can you shed a little more light on that for people who are thinking about making those year-end charitable gifts. Any any tips that you can share on that front? Yeah. yeah. So, you know, the, 
obviously with the changes in the, the, the tax law a few years ago, a lot fewer people are able to itemize their deductions. It's down to about 10% of taxpayers or about a third of the people who used to itemize still itemize now. So it's harder to get a tax benefit for those charitable gifts like we used to just kind of take for granted. Um, if you are somebody who can take advantage of that, though, uh, maybe you're looking at like a bunching strategy where you're accelerating prior, future year contributions into this year, where you're going to bunch them all and get a deduction this year. Maybe you do that in combination with something like a donor advised fund that allows you to get the tax benefit right away while still maintaining some control over the assets and, and distributing them out to charities later on. Or maybe you, if you're not somebody who's itemizing, um, but you're old enough to qualify, maybe you have to look at something like a qualified charitable distribution. That can be a great way to get some money out of retirement plans and pass on to charity uh, without having to worry about any tax consequences. So um, otherwise, if you're, if you're making charitable gifts, we always recommend considering things like uh, appreciated property rather than cash gifts, because you not only get the same deduction value, but you also avoid the capital gain. So, so take advantage of some of those more basic charitable giving opportunities that are out there. Make sure the gifts are completed by end of year, though. If you want to get the deduction, you got to have it done before the end of the year. And the CARES Act also had a provision that allows even non-itemizers to get a little bit of a charitable deduction, right? Yeah, exactly. So this is part of the CARES Act that this year where they allowed for people who don't itemize their deductions, which as I said is like 90% of taxpayers now, to still be able to get a small benefit for charitable gifts. If you give up to $300 in cash to public charities, you can take what they call an above the line deduction for that. So it, uh, it, you get a tax benefit for it in addition to your standard deduction that you might be claiming. If you itemize, you don't get that, but it is a, a nice benefit. Uh, it is a $300 amount regardless of your filing status. So you know, if you're a single person, you get 300, married couples get the same 300. It's a little bit of a marriage penalty there, but um, we'll, we'll take that $300 deduction if we can get it. Absolutely. Tim, thank you so much for being here. It's always so helpful. Great. Thanks, Christine. Thanks for watching. I'm Christine Benz for Morningstar. Lastly, Christine Benz and Susan Javinsky from Morningstar, Inc. discuss the importance of emergency funds. Hi, I'm Susan Javinsky with Morningstar. The pandemic and related job losses are shining a spotlight on the importance of having a liquid reserve as part of your financial plan. But is the standard rule of thumb of three to six months worth of living expenses sufficient? Joining me today to discuss the topic is Christine Benz. Christine is Morningstar's Director of Personal Finance. Hi, Christine. Thanks for being here today. Susan, always great to be here. Thank you. Now, let's first talk a little bit about why are emergency funds so important? Well, the key reason is that we all have unexpected expenses that crop up. Job loss certainly is another key reason to maintain an emergency fund. And if you have that buffer of cash, the idea is that you won't need to resort to unattractive forms of financing those unexpected costs. So you won't need to put them on credit cards. You won't need to raid your 401k or IRA. So that, that's really the key reason. Now, some people might assume that pulling together a sufficient emergency fund might be more challenging for lower income workers. But in fact, this is a challenge that spans all income levels, right? Well, as you might expect, it is harder for lower income folks to amass emergency re reserves. Pew Research put out this survey earlier this year that looked at emergency reserves. So do you have three months in liquid reserves? Looked at that question by income band. And as you might expect, about 75% of people with low incomes did not have those emergency reserves. But the surprising thing is, 
about half of people at middle income levels did not have three months worth of liquid reserves and about a fourth of people at higher income levels. So this problem, this issue cuts across income levels, though obviously it's a bigger deal and much harder for people at lower income levels. Now, the CARES Act, which was passed into law earlier this year, allows those who have been impacted by COVID-19 to tap into their 401k plans and their IRAs. What do you think of that idea? Well, it's a very generous consumer-friendly law overall in that uh, people who do need to tap their 401ks or IRAs because they've either had economic or physical hardship due to COVID-19 can actually get in there, take the money out, and then they can put the money back in. So they have up to three years to get the money back into the account so they can make themselves whole on the money that they've taken out. So from that standpoint, it's it's a decent uh, avenue for people who are in need of short-term funds, but a couple of reasons why it's not a great idea. One is certainly the opportunity cost. If your money's not in there earning, it's it's uh, going to be lower over time than if you had left the money undisturbed. And then another point I would make is that research points to there being sort of a potato chip factor in play with regard to taking money out of 401ks. So once someone gets in there and takes money for some really legitimate financial need, they'll probably find other reasons to get in there and and use the funds for other purposes. So um, it's like bringing the bag of potato chips in the house. Once you get started, it's, it's hard to stop. And so that's another sort of red flag related to pulling prematurely from 401ks and IRAs. Now, you know, the standard rule of thumb has we've always heard is three to six months worth of living expenses for your emergency fund. But are there certain groups of people who should maybe have a little bit more than that set set aside? Absolutely. So contract workers, people with lumpy incomes, uh, people who work on commissions, for example, people with highly volatile, what we call human capital, should be sure to have a higher level of liquid reserves. People with more specialized career paths, higher income workers, those jobs are generally harder to replace if lost, so they should run with a higher buffer as well. I would also add in older workers. Susan, because one thing we saw in the last recession is that older workers took a longer time if they lost them. So those would be some groups that I would highlight as needing probably closer to a year's worth of liquid reserves if they can possibly swing it. And what groups of people on the flip side might be able to make do with slightly smaller emergency funds? Well, a small category would be anyone with sort of an, a guaranteed income stream. So the tenured college professor, for example, who is not at big risk of job loss, might have a lower emergency fund. Also, I would say younger workers, uh, especially those who are still somewhat flexible in terms of their lifestyles and living arrangements, you know, if they're willing to get roommates or move back with mom and dad, if their life 
style is somewhat in flux, they can absorb losses, job losses, uh, more than workers who are more established, like the single earner who's responsible for a, a family of five, for example. Um, so I think that that flexibility would buy younger workers uh, potentially the chance to have a little bit less in liquid reserves. So given that so many people do struggle with building up that emergency fund, what tips do you have for making it a little less painful for people? Well, I think one thing to think about is that you don't need to have on hand, say, three to six months worth of what you're spending today. Remember that if you did experience job loss, you would probably make some cuts in your budget. So think about your very basic expenditures and use that to right size your emergency fund. And I think if you do that, you'll you'll make it a little bit more manageable. Another thing that I like uh, is the idea of kind of automating those emergency fund contributions. So until you get up to the level where you're hoping to be, just have those contributions get deployed directly from your bank account into the investment account, into the cash reserves until you're up to your target level. And then another thing I would note, Susan, is that some employers are adding this emergency fund idea alongside the 401k fund. So you're not able to receive tax breaks, but look for that. Uh, UPS, for example, recently added that for its employers. I think it's a terrific consumer-friendly option. So those are just a few ideas. Yeah, that's great. If you if you can't see it, you don't touch it as easily, right? <laughs> exactly. Well, Christine, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you, Susan. I'm Susan Jabinski with Morningstar. Thank you for tuning in. That does it for this week's Investing Insights podcast from Morningstar. We hope you have enjoyed our program and we welcome your feedback. Please send your comments and questions to podcast at Morningstar.com. From everyone here at Morningstar, thanks for listening. This recording is for informational purposes only and should not be considered investment advice. Opinions expressed are as of the date of recording. Such opinions are subject to change. The views and opinions of guests on this program are not necessarily those of Morningstar Inc. and its affiliates. Morningstar and its affiliates are not affiliated with this guest or his or her business affiliates unless otherwise stated. Morningstar does not guarantee the accuracy or the completeness of the data presented herein. The podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be considered tax advice. Please consult a tax and or financial professional for advice specific to your individual circumstances. Morningstar Research Services, LLC, is a subsidiary of Morningstar, Inc. and is registered with and governed by the U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission. Morningstar Research Services shall not be responsible for any trading decisions, damages, or other losses resulting from or related to the information, data analysis, or opinions, or their use. Past performance is not a guarantee of future results. All investments are subject to investment risk, including possible loss of principal. Individuals should seriously consider if an investment is suitable for them by referencing their own financial position, investment objectives, and risk profile before making any investment decision.